The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information, we encourage you to visit our website, northbryantbaptist.org. Well, we're back in 2 Peter chapter 2 this morning, so if you will take your Bibles and turn there. 2 Peter chapter 2. How many of you know who Dizzy Dean was? Got some hands going up, some nods. Dizzy Dean was a Hall of Fame baseball pitcher. I won't tell you what team he's most famous for playing on. Some of you will get that later. He was born in Lucas, Arkansas in 1910. And during his career, he was known just as much for his confidence and his mouth as he was for how dominant he was on the pitcher's mound. And once he boasted that he could strike out Vince DiMaggio, the brother of the Yankees' great Joe DiMaggio, four times in the same game. It's hard to strike out one hitter four times in the same game. But Dizzy struck Vince out the first three times. In Vince's fourth at bat, though, he hit a pop foul that normally the catcher would catch. But Dizzy yelled to his catcher, drop it. The catcher did. And Dizzy then struck Vince out for the fourth time in the same game. That's one example of Dizzy Dean's mouth and his dominance. And it's a perfect example of one of his famous quotes. It ain't bragging if you done it. It ain't bragging if you done it. Say, so how in the world does that relate to 2 Peter, Brother Matt? Well, at the end of chapter 1, Peter urged us to hold fast to God's Word. Not just because it's truth, but also because God's Word is not the only thing we'll hear. At the start of chapter 2, he mentioned that just as false prophets arose in ancient Israel, there will be false teachers arise among Christianity. And so we have to focus on God's Word. And as chapter 2 began, he warns us about these false teachers. Sadly, these greedy men who deny the Lord sometimes have massive followings and huge success in this life. Peter mentioned that. But even though they may have success short term, Peter also said from long ago God has planted their field of judgment. The destruction upon false teachers is not growing tired or drowsy or weary. God will judge false teachers. And you say, but how can we trust that, especially when we see the success they're having? How do we know this isn't just some empty brag from God? Because he's done it. He's done it. History is filled with examples of God judging wickedness. And so Peter's going to put forth this morning three examples of that. And so as we look at these three past judgments of God, we should be encouraged in the present and as we look to the future. How do I know God can handle wickedness? Because he's done it in the past. Look at verse 4, and we'll read through verse 9. Peter says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, 
bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that, should, uh, that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of this world, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. We'll stop there this morning. And, and really, this is just one long, complex sentence here. Um, it's what we call a conditional sentence, right? An if and a then Technically speaking, there's only one if, that's in verse 4, but it's implied throughout. So some of your English translations may have if uh, a few times throughout, and that's, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But then the finale is verse 9. If God did these things, if these things are true, and we know they are, then God knows how to judge and He knows how to deliver. And so this morning, we're going to have part one of the sermon over these verses, and we're just going to focus more on the judgment as opposed to the deliverance. And Lord willing, next week we'll look at, at how the Lord knows how to deliver. But this morning, we're going to focus on the fact that the Lord knows how to judge. And in verse 4, the first example of God's judgment is about fallen angels. And there are different ideas about what angelic sin Peter referred to here in verse 4. There are different ideas about when those different sins may have happened. And I'm going to answer all of your questions about that today. Why are y'all laughing? Because y'all know that that's, that's tongue-in-cheek. The truth is we wish we knew more than we actually do here. I've joked before that we know a whole lot more about angels than the Bible tells us. Um, and by that, I just mean that we have a lot of ideas, a lot of traditions, a lot of beliefs. Some may be good, some may be right, some may be wrong, but they can't be proven by Scripture. We absolutely do know that the devil is real and that he was cast from heaven. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We know that. Peter told us in near the end of his first letter that uh, he described the devil as our adversary who walks around, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We also know that some angels chose to follow Satan in his rebellion. According to Revelation chapter 12, it seems that roughly one-third of the angels did that. And we call these rebellious angels demons or fallen angels, they are real. Jesus cast out demons from people during his personal ministry. But according to verse 4 here, not all angels that have sinned have this, quote, freedom of still having any influence in this world like we may think of, of a demon during the first century that was hurting people that Jesus rescued from those sorts of things. Whatever specific sin Peter refers to here from these angels, God did not spare them. He didn't. And what that, the idea of God not sparing them just simply means God didn't withhold the punishment they deserved. 
took care of it. God has already delivered some of these rebellious angels into pits or chains of darkness, reserving them for their final judgment. Peter says there in verse 4 that God cast them down to hell. This is not the normal word for hell in the New Testament. You may even have a note in your, in your Bible. The, this entire phrase comes from one single Greek word that sounds like this, Tartarus. And it's not the sauce you dip your catfish in. Tartarus was from Greek mythology, actually. And it was a place that the Greeks viewed as this subterranean place, even lower down than Hades, where we might say severe divine punishment was handed out. In Greek mythology, it was a place for rebellious gods and the most wicked humans uh, to be housed or imprisoned. And so perhaps since Peter's dealing with angelic sin, he sort of borrows that terminology here because his readers would have understood what he's talking about in this just really severe, dark, gloomy place of, of punishment. He almost presents it here like it's a, a holding cell where they're, they're already being punished, but they're awaiting their final punishment and their final judgment. This example that Peter brings up about God's judgment of, of the angels is both the most mysterious one of the three examples we read here, and it tends to be the one that we're the most interested in. We are, we are so curious about the angelic world. Last month at church camp, Brother Todd Self preached a message one evening from Galatians, and it was uh, the, the point of the message was we need to focus on Christ. Stay focused on Jesus, on the cross, on what he did for us. It was a good message. Later on that evening, we had a, just an open forum question and answer session where uh, the campers could ask the preachers at the camp just any question they wanted about church, God, the Bible, anything like that. Just a, a good time of learning, hopefully. Whew! There were a lot of good, tough, deep questions asked that night about the devil and angels. And finally, I sort of joked that Brother Todd just preached this message about us focusing on Christ, and all y'all are doing is asking questions about the devil. And everybody sort of laughed. It was a joke. I wasn't trying to stop the questions, but... It was just sort of a, you know, a funny way to show that, man, we have a tendency to just, we, we love talking about angels and thinking about them. They're mysterious and we want to know more and we're enamored by them. We're curious about Satan and angels and demons and I cannot answer all your questions about them. But I can tell you this, all of those beings are subject to God. There is not a being in this universe that will not ultimately answer to God Almighty. I may not understand everything about the spiritual realm, but God sure does. And I trust him to take care of it. So here in this verse, let's not lose the forest for the, for the mysterious trees. One author said it's not necessary to debate the hidden mysteries of this verse in order to get the main message, and that is that God judges rebellion and will not spare those who reject his will. How do I know God will judge false teachers? He's already judged angels. 
A skeptic might say, okay, Brother Matt, fair enough, but that was angels. What about humans? Well, the second example he goes into in verse 5 has to do with the world of humanity, doesn't it? He brings up the flood of Noah's day. God did not spare the ancient world, but brought the flood, notice the end of verse 5, upon the world of the ungodly. We've seen this word uh, ungodly used before in this letter. Really, I should say we've seen the reverse of it used. We've seen the positive aspect used of godliness. If you look back in chapter 1 and verse 3, that's where Peter mentioned that God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. In verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1, in that list of virtues, godliness was one of those things we need to be working diligently to add to our faith. So that's the positive aspect of that word. Here we have the negative. You may or may not remember when we looked at that word in chapter 1 that it's actually not built at all on the word for God, like it sounds. But it's a word that has the idea of having proper respect. Having this reverence that's directed to the right person or the right thing. It's, it's this well-directed reverence. But here Peter uses it in the negative. And so the people in Noah's day lacked a proper respect. I think it would absolutely be, be okay to say they did not respect one another. They didn't respect society. But ultimately, they did not respect their creator or his imprint on the world. And I want to talk about this for just a moment because this word... I believe demonstrates the sheer corruption of the world back then in Noah's day. And it's going to be used again in verse 6. He's going to use the same word. Some unbelievers who do not have a personal relationship with God, who don't know Jesus as their own Savior, they don't love God, but they still might demonstrate some sense of a, of a proper respect to him for some of the values that he's put forth, for some of the, the ways he has created this world and the societies that are in it. You say, what do you, you, know, what do you mean, Brother Matt? Well, not every unbeliever is unfaithful to his or her spouse. Not every unbeliever steals from Walmart. Not every unbeliever is a violent killer. They may not love God. They may not have a relationship with Him. But at least there's some sort of a correct respect for the moral code God ordained. There's still some respect for the way He built society or some awareness that there's a Creator. I believe it is possible to have a respect for someone that you don't love. I didn't love my junior high basketball coach. We did not have a close personal relationship. I didn't like the way he ran practices. I didn't agree with the plays he called. I didn't like him, much less love him. But I did respect him. Because he was my coach. I never argued with him. When he called a play, I did my job. I never gave him less than my best, even if I didn't agree with something we were doing. When he asked me a question, the answer was yes, sir, or no, sir. So even though I didn't love him, 
and we didn't have that personal relationship, he was still my coach, and, and I did need to have a proper respect for that. So I did. The people in Noah's day did not even have that. Not only did they like love for God and a, they didn't have a relationship with God, they didn't even have a decent respect for Him. And if you lack respect for God and the way He created this world, don't be surprised when immorality and violence and wickedness take over. That's what happened in Noah's day. Listen to how Genesis 6 describes the world then. The Bible says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Those verses are a scathing rebuke of mankind. And it is where you end up if you lack respect for God if sin goes completely unchecked, if sin and lack of respect, if they have their own way, if they run rampant, violence and wickedness and immorality will be as prevalent as oxygen. Does it sound like a world you know? It's the world Noah lived in too. A dark, corrupt, violent world, a world that grieved God and when his patience reached its limit in his holiness and in his righteousness, it was time to judge. People don't always like to think about God's judgment. Oh, they want his warmth and they want his grace and his love, but they don't want to talk about his judgment. But God is bigger than just love. He's more complex than that. He's a righteous, holy God. And when it was the right time, he judged humanity's wickedness. Genesis 7 describes the flood, and if you think it was just a steady rain for a while, you've got the wrong picture of the flood. It was powerful judgment. The word that Peter uses for flood here, we get our word cataclysm from. The Bible says in Genesis 7 that when the flood began, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. So not only was rain pouring down from the sky, but the earth was breaking open and the subterranean waters were bursting forth. This wasn't a nice summer rain shower like we've had the past couple of days. It just happened to last long enough. This was a violent flood that ripped the earth open. The highest mountains on earth at that time were covered with about 22 feet of water, according to Genesis 7, 19 and 20. The Bible says in verse 23 of Genesis 7 that everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. 
So, if the example of God judging sinful angels did not convince you that God knows how to and will judge wickedness, then surely the flood that nearly wiped out humanity will convince you. God will not let evil go unpunished. It was the right thing for God to do to destroy the entire human race with the exception of eight people. We'll talk more about Noah's deliverance next week, Lord willing. There's an important truth I want you to consider here before we move on to the next example here, but it's important, especially since humans sometimes have a herd mentality. We follow the crowd. We think, well, if everyone's doing it, it's okay, or if everyone's doing it, it'll be okay. We have a phrase, there's safety in numbers. They're not gonna, they can't arrest all of us. I mean, surely they're not gonna, they're not gonna get us all. Being in the majority will not shield you from the judgment of God. Please know that. Being in the majority will not shield you from God's judgment. If the whole world is sinning, God will not lower his standards. In a sea of wicked people, not one individual will be overlooked. So sinful angels were not spared. Wicked humanity was not spared. Look in verse 6. Finally, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were not spared. So this is the third and final example Peter gives here of God judging wickedness in the past. Sodom and Gomorrah, even, even more so than the flood generation, these cities have become synonymous with evil. They're infamous for their wickedness. Sometimes we have one certain sin in our minds when it comes to these cities, but it was even more than that. In Ezekiel chapter 16, there's, there's an even more overarching rebuke of these cities. Ezekiel wrote, She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. We tend to think of perverse homosexual violence when we think of these cities. It's even more than that. There's arrogance, there's pride, there's unwillingness to help the poor. There's so many things that made these cities just an abomination, so, so wicked. And in Genesis 18, the Lord revealed to Abraham that he was about to judge those cities. The Lord said to Abraham, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. And if you know the story, Abraham's understandably worried about this. Why? His nephew Lot lived there. And so the Bible records this very famous conversation between Abraham and the Lord where Abraham pleaded with God, if there are 50 righteous people in those cities, please don't destroy it. And God agreed, right? And the story goes that Abraham bargained all the way down to 10. If there were 10 righteous people, please, Lord, don't, don't destroy the city. The Lord told him, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. God's more than willing to show mercy. But when the angels that the Lord sent arrived in the cities, 
There was not ten righteous people found. The wickedness and the immorality were obvious and destruction was upcoming. And we'll talk again next week about Lot's rescue. But in Genesis 19, the Bible says this, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. The destruction of these cities was so severe and so final that we really don't even know where they were. Probably somewhere around the Dead Sea. We sort of have an idea, but we don't know precisely. They're wiped off the map. As Peter said, turned into ashes. There are areas around the Dead Sea that have high concentration of certain minerals we would expect to find with a fiery judgment. But we don't know for sure. As Peter said there in verse 6, it was an overthrow. Or some of you have a translation that says an extinction or destruction. Our word catastrophe comes from that word. It was a catastrophe judgment. And notice the end of verse 6. It was an example unto those that after should live ungodly. And that word ungodly is our lack of respect again. The, the, the lack of reverence. If you think you can live in God's world without a proper respect for Him and the way, thing, uh, way He created things, and you can get away with it, you need to look at the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah as your example. They are a warning and that's the final historical proof that Peter gives here that God knows how to judge wickedness. He could give so many other examples, couldn't he? But I think angelic sin, the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah pretty much cover all the bases there. If he didn't spare the angels, if he didn't spare the wicked world, and if he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, I can be pretty confident that God knows how to judge. So look at verse 9. We'll focus on the last part of the verse. If these things are true, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day, uh, the day of judgment to be punished. God knows how to reserve or keep the unjust. This word unjust is not your ungodly word. It's unrighteous, unjust. So it, it's absolutely someone who does not believe or trust God. This person is not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. They have not repented. They've not believed. There's no relationship there between them and their creator and judge. And Peter says that there's no unrighteous one that's going to escape God's judgment. He knows how to keep them unto the day of judgment when they receive what we would probably just say their final sentence or their final punishment. And it's okay to have the idea as we read this of uh, these unrighteous ones, uh, sort of like the angels, uh, suffering even now while they are held waiting their, their final punishment. God knows how to do it. He knows how to handle wickedness. 
And so not to make light of something that is so serious, but if you if you've done it, it ain't bragging. This is not an empty boast from Peter when he says God's going to judge false teachers because he's done it in the past. He knows how to handle wickedness. God doesn't make empty boasts. Did you know that? God does not ever make an empty brag. He's taken care of it in the past and he'll do it in the future. And so for this, for this morning, there's, there's sort of two applications I want us to consider. And the first I, I just mentioned, God can do it and he will do it. And so don't look around at the wickedness in this world, at the lack of respect, at the success of false religion, at just the sheer immorality now that we, that we see. Don't ever doubt God's ability to take care of it. God has not lost control. He's just really patient. Peter's going to talk about that in the next chapter. The world today is a lot like the world in Noah's day, isn't it? It's a lot like the world of Sodom and Gomorrah. At the right time, God will judge wickedness. He's planted the field, Peter said in verse 3. The right time he's going to harvest. And so for us, trust that. Just remain true to God's word like he encourages us to do at the end of chapter 1. And in a world that's filled with the success of false religion, you and I and North Bryant and other two churches, just stay focused on God's word and do what he's told us to do. Just trust him and know that he's still in control even when false teachers seem like they might be, and even when wickedness seems like it might be. God is. But the second application that I want you to consider is a little more personal. I want you to ask yourself if you are awaiting God's judgment. Do you lack a proper respect for God? Do you lack His righteousness? Do you lack a relationship with Him? If that's true, if you, if you lack those things, you need to know that there's nothing in your power to change that. You need grace. There's no rank or status or prestige that you can attain in order to escape God's judgment. He judged angels. They're a little more powerful than you. But even that status did not stop God from doing what's right. And don't think you can blend in with the crowd and escape uh, because of the majority. God judged the entire world during Noah's day. He overthrew entire cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is no safety in numbers. There's only safety in Jesus Christ. So instead of being one that's kept for judgment, let Christ keep you. Give your heart and your soul to Him. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He's the Lord anyway, so why not do it now? Repent and trust Him and give Him your heart and you'll be delivered from judgment. Not because God turned a blind eye to your sin. 
not because he didn't care about it, not because he didn't judge it, but because Jesus took your place. He paid the price on the cross. The only innocent man who ever lived dying for the guilty. If you'll give your life to Christ, he will forgive you and redeem you and deliver you. Say, how can we trust that God knows how to deliver? Is this some empty brag? Tune in next week and we'll look more at these verses and be encouraged that just as God, just as God knew how to deliver Noah and Lot, he knows how to deliver us. Let's stand and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us and we thank you for these reminders that Peter has given us. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged by these, to just completely trust you. You know what you're doing. You have the power and the ability to handle wickedness. And Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that Jesus took our sin from us if we will trust in him. I pray that if there's someone here today who's lost, that they would ask forgiveness, that they would trust Jesus before it's too late. Lord, we live in a wicked world, but I pray that we will be a church and we will be individuals who live for you and shine as lights in this dark world. Lord, forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.